Hello, and welcome to the Dementia Researcher Podcast. Seasons greetings wherever you are. It's that time of year where we usually bring you a show of clips and highlights from the year that's passed to celebrate and highlight the great work of all of our contributors, as well as to reflect and prepare for the year ahead. 2020 has been a difficult and tragic year. The pandemic has affected everyone's lives. On behalf of Dementia Researcher, I want to take a moment to thank everyone who has worked hard to keep research going this year. As Francis of Assisi once said, start by doing what's necessary, then do what's possible, and suddenly you're doing the impossible. And I feel that as a scientific community, you've done exactly that. I try to find the positives in every situation, so here are my thoughts. The world suddenly feels a little bit smaller. As webinars and online conferences came into their own, I've seen more science shared than ever before and seen talks and posters from people I would never otherwise have had a chance to see. In developing a vaccine, we've seen what just can be possible when the scientific community has money and time and resources. And this is inspiring and has demonstrated what could be done if if that same focus was placed on Alzheimer's disease and dementia. At Dementia Researcher, we've been enthused to see organisations waking up to the importance and contribution of early career researchers and to see the support systems for you all growing. We'll continue in 2021 to do what we can to help and to build the community and encourage more people to take up a career in dementia research. So from me, Adam Smith, and everyone at Dementia Researcher, keep calm, jingle all the way, and enjoy our 2020 Highlights Reel. Okay, so we had a podcast last year, I think it was, called Fifty Shades of Microglia, um, so hopefully our listeners have all listened to that so they know the general role of microglia. But maybe we could hear from you, Maria, about quite how awesome microglia are. Sure. Um, so in my personal experience, I always think of microglia as your very own personal ninjas, avenging any kind of threat to your brain and all of the central nervous system. And in more scientific terms, microglia serve as your phagocytic sentinels, um, so the key effector cells of the immune system patrolling the brain, maintaining homeostasis, making sure that everything works just fine, pruning any kind of unnecessary connections and also clearing up pathogens and cellular debris. And um, they're not just smart and capable, they're quite the looker because they're really fascinating to observe and study under microscope. But for me personally, what I really appreciate about microglia is um, that their function and dysfunction in the brain represents sort of uncharted territory, um, secrets behind an open doors, if you will, because it really stirs hope for new discoveries and treatments. The brain has been studied for decades from neck up. And um, 
it, it was almost always as if the brain functions, doesn't function in unison with the periphery and other cell types surrounding neurons. The term glia literally derives from Greek glue, reflective of how the microglia were long thought of. And um, basically it was just a support to the main start of the game, the neurons. So for me personally, as a neuroscientist, it's really encouraging and exciting to see the growth of the interdisciplinary approach. Um, and the efforts to understand neuronal function in the context of everything else that's going on in the brain. Hello everyone and thanks for joining us. I am Megan O'Hare and I'm delighted to be hosting our first daily Alzheimer's Association International Conference special podcast. So we'll be sharing news and our favourite moments from each day of the AAIC. Uh, like we do normally, but as you probably know, the conference was due to take place in the Netherlands this year, but the pandemic has changed all that. And so this year's conference is taking place virtually, with every talk and poster still being shared online. And there are live scientific sessions and uh, pre-recorded and on-demand videos as well. Okay, should we start with the uh, plenary session, which was delivered by Ralph Nixon on proteostasis failure in Alzheimer's disease and related dementias and new clues to pathogenesis and therapy. So I came to the plenary from a completely non-lysosome specialist perspective. Um, so I normally work on um, things like depression and anxieties, manifestations of Alzheimer's disease or risk factors for the development of Alzheimer's disease. So nothing to do with lysosomes in my daily work. But I, what I particularly liked was the way that he was able to make it understandable for someone like me. He didn't really know an awful lot about autophagy and lysosomes. And I really liked the way, um, particularly from a clinical perspective, that he was able to relate it to other similar diseases. I thought that was really good. Um, and I particularly liked the inside out model of where neuritic plaques come from, because that made a lot of sense to me. So that's great. Today I am joined by three amazingly talented early career researchers, bigging them all up there, uh, to discuss day two of the Alzheimer's Association International Virtual Conference. There was one that I really liked that didn't really have anything to do with biomarkers today. It was from Lee Gao at Harvard um, on sleep disturbance and incidents in Alzheimer's disease. And in this study, they followed patients for 12 years um, and kind of looked at their self-reported data. And it was, I was really fascinated by their findings saying that if you have, if you sleep more than nine hours, um, your uh, likelihood of having Alzheimer's disease or developing Alzheimer's disease increased. And in my head, I'm always telling people you need to get the, you need to get as much sleep as you can. Whereas I think instead you have to find that nice balance. Um, and they did talk about a potential mechanism in there. Um, so I think future studies in that will be really fascinating. I found that uh, talk really fascinating too. I know that I, I saw that they used UK biobank data, which particularly caught my eye because where I work at UCL has a biobank and they had 502,000 uh, data sets people to look at, which is just such a huge number. I, Anybody who's interested in data sets should definitely look at the UK Biobank. And given this study was taking place at Massachusetts General Hospital, this is just to show you can access this data elsewhere in the world. And it was fascinating. So six to nine hours sleep were uh, two per thousand were going to go on to develop um, 
cognitive impairment, whereas for the nine hours plus sleep, it was 6.6 per thousand. So it was, you know, more than three times uh, as likely, which I, I agree with you. I mean, who thought more sleep was better? I mean, that's mm -hmm. not the case at all looking at, I mean, obviously it's going to be complex. There'll be more factors to, to play into that. I'm sure if you wanted to unpick and find fault with this, I'm sure you could. But uh, also sleep apnea was a factor and daytime sleepiness. Once again, I'm joined by three special guests who've all been immersed in the third day of the Alzheimer's Association International Virtual Conference. The focus for day three of the AIC was the clinical manifestations and drug development. Uh, and so that will be what we'll talk about today. Uh, Anna, I'm going to come to you first time because that's, well, twofold. First of all, um, people will now know that we're not the same person because we are actually in a podcast at the same time. You and I talk all the time, but we've never actually been in a podcast together before, I realise. I'm glad that we can now differentiate between us. Yeah, that's really significant. And the first time I've gotten to introduce you as doctor. Congratulations. Thank you very much. I'm going with evil Dr. Volkmer. I think it works well with my surname. It does. You'd be a character in and um, with some minions, I, I imagine. Yeah, I was going for a Bond villain and I'd like some henchmen, but you know. <laughs> Isn't that what the children are for? Are the children yeah, your precisely. henchmen? precisely. <laughs> That's right. Danielle, you've been quiet. Let's come to you <laughs> first of all. Um, so what did you see, see and hear yesterday that caught your eye? Yeah, sure. So my previous um, work within dementia um, has been around clinical trials, recruiting patients into trials and running really big prevention studies um, and only being within um, the DRI uh, for the past five weeks. I wanted to go and see um, what was happening within technology and um, I really focused my attention there. So Something that caught my eye was um, a presentation by Professor Ipsit Fahal um, at the University of Harvard, where he outlined um, mapping behavioural symptoms within, the, in, within dementia using passive radio sensing and how the digital phenotyping makes this work possible. Uh, and by that, he um, defined that as moment by mo moment quantification of the individual level human phenotype in situ. So using data from personal digital devices uh, to enable us to study perhaps how people move around their homes um, and what that then says about what might be happening clinically. So he used quite a good example of um, a patient with a depressed mood, for example. Uh, and being able to use voice analysis, perhaps using an Alexa device or your mobile phone to be able to track that, but also using um, etigraphy, which is the study of movement, to perhaps track sleep, appetite, or psychomotor symptoms. And he then applied that to dementia. So could we perhaps manage, track agitation, or at the other end, apathy? So his group have been working with MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, to monitor this movement and behavior and using AI to then map these movements. And what I really liked about his presentation was his um, use of this technology, which is still fairly experimental, 
and then using it to try and help clinicians facilitate earlier intervention. Uh, and they've been able to demonstrate that change of movement or odd patterns of movement could be used to make adjustments to medication or behavioural interventions. And they've used it in, in COVID patients as well, living in an assisted living facility, where they were able to measure um, breathing rate of those that were diagnosed with COVID and the changes between day one, for example, versus day four. And obviously not having to have very close contact to be able to do that. So I really liked um, the evolution and the quick nature that that could be used within COVID patients. So I found that really interesting. Once again, joined by a new panel today of dementia researchers to discuss day four of the Alzheimer's Association International Virtual Conference. I'm going to come to you next, uh, Rena. The, you, the racial disparities session with Lisa Barnes was talked about a lot online yesterday. Uh, could you give us a summary of that session? Yeah, it was really interesting. Uh, Lisa Barnes is kind of talking about racial disparities between African-Americans and white people. And she was talking about how African-Americans are twice as likely to develop dementia, but they're less likely to get a diagnosis or be represented in clinical trials, which I think is something that was talked about a bit last year as well, and is, is steadily getting more into the narrative of research that we really aren't including minority groups into clinical trials. Um, but she also mentioned that there didn't seem to be any difference in the rates of their actual cognitive decline in comparison to um, the white population, but they seem to start at a lower, a lower set on the cognitive test. So they're getting lower scores going into any kind of um, studies, which could be influenced by factors affected by race, such as the socioeconomic status or the literacy, um, and also the fact that they're less likely to get a diagnosis at those early stages. So it's kind of hard to compare them, I think. But it was interesting that they didn't really find any particular differences. There was a few differences in pathology. So they found that people with dementia um, in African-American communities were more likely to have mixed pathology. But she also mentioned that actually they go to memory clinics for other problems than memory problems. And that might be why we're just seeing a more representative group of people who might have also got hypertension or other kind of factors. Um, and then she went on to talk about how just the experiences of discrimination in their youth was actually impacting their health and the presentation of their cognition. So, for example, they found um, using fMRI studies that there was less functional connectivity in places that were related to trust in people with dementia from African-American descent, and that this seemed to be linked to their experiences of discrimination in schools, particularly if they'd grown up in the South in America. I just thought that was a really interesting kind of idea that I'd never thought of. And it also got mentioned then later on in an LGBTQ session as well, that perhaps that was something that would feed into LGBTQ experiences as well, that they felt more discrimination in their youth and that might be affecting their later cognitive status. So it was really interesting. It was. Does anybody else have anything to add to that? I made that link as well with the um, something that you... It, it was a bit cop-smacking sort of thing. You, 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 so she talked, like like Rens just said, about the integrated uh, the schools. So you, you'd think, I think as maybe as a policymaker, especially at the time, you think, oh, that's a great thing. But actually now it turns out it has some sort of adverse effect later down the line. And who could have thought that? And, and yeah, that's just really interesting to see also for future policies, I guess, uh, that you, you're thinking you're doing the right, you make the right decision on one level, but on another level, it might actually go the other way. Um, yeah, it just uh, it, it just shows the complexity. 
and and also you're right i picked up as well about the lgbtq uh, population my goodness and if you have a double that's uh, that's that's really it gets really complex that way yeah for sure um i think um a podcast panelist from naic i, I think it might have been in 2018 nika sablova um, who's now at Columbia as well. She also had a poster yesterday looking at um, about African-American populations and education, which was very interesting. So please go go have a look at that. It was, um, she's N-I-K-A-S-E-B-L-O-V-A, Nika Sablova, and that's under the public health sections in the posters. Uh, Isabel, uh, what are your circumstances right now? I'm also uh, funded by IK, and um, in a way, I'm one. I consider myself more 50-50, so 50% lab-based and 50% bioinformatics and analysis. Um, so I'm lucky in the way as I've, I still have work to do. Um, I was running experiments and optimizing things. All of that is delayed because we had to pause all of that. But I still have lots of work that I can do from home. And I, I was used to working from home anyway. I usually try to do it once a week. And actually, I think 99% of my PhD thesis was written at home. However, this is different. Um, I find that right now is a really, really challenging time. Everything just changed in an instant. And I've been... Um, well, one, there was this high expectation as well when we started that, oh, we now have so much time in our hands. We'll do, I started with, oh, I'll write papers, papers, I'll write grants, I'll do all the webinars, all the, all, all the courses. And I feel I've hit, I'm just against the wall in, in a way. Uh, I've been feeling quite unproductive, unmotivated, and I don't want to feel this way. So it's in a way, it's a bit exhausting. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to, um, take one day at a time and see the small achievements as small successes. So doing an analysis, uh, reading a paper, submitting a report, instead of just looking at finishing this big experiment or this big analysis, I'm trying to look at the small steps more and more. Today, I'm delighted to welcome my friend, uh, Eric Dine. Hi, Eric. How are you doing? I think uh, it's fascinating because it is some of the most amazing science, in fact, verging on science fiction from, from my little knowledge of this. So Eric is going to talk about his research into magnetothermal destruction of beta amyloid plaque. So hi, everybody. I'm Eric Dine. I am a graduate student at Kent State University, and today we're going to talk about using hypothermia via magnetic nanoparticles to disrupt beta amyloid plaques. Um, as Adam said, it is quite a fascinating approach to targeting amyloidosis and Alzheimer's. However, I think this has a lot of very interesting implications and we have a bright future for it. So where can we go with nanoparticles? The future is vast. They can be made out of many different materials. We can stimulate them using various manners. They're uh, now working using these for contrast agents, drug delivery. And I think I said kind of the same thing with the brain, but yes, we're, they're looking now into using nanoparticles for glioblastoma. They're using it for Parkinson's disease. They found some success with delivering drugs for oligodendrocytes and multiple sclerosis and some leukodystrophies. And then of course, the I get constantly is well, what about tau protein? 
we're focused on the amyloid hypothesis. What about the tau hypothesis? And luckily there's already groups that are looking at targeting tau or using nanoparticles to negate the um, effects of tau protein. So there, we're, the field is growing. It's relatively small at the moment, but it is a very exciting field. And the cancer therapeutics that come with nanoparticles and mild hyperthermia is just fantastic. And what am I doing after I graduate? I don't really know. Um, so hello, and thank you for joining me for the Venture Research Chat on Live. I'm Adam Smith, and for the next 12 hours, I'm going to be your host uh, through what I hope will be an interesting day. In this marathon session, I'm going to be interviewing 56 researchers, uh, four special guests, discussing their research, what motivates them, and um, how their work is helping uh, people with dementia. The whole event is in aid of Alzheimer's Research UK. They're an amazing charity. They fund a significant amount of research. Um, and through this day, we hope to raise 5,000 pounds. And together we are the... Dementia Dementia Podcast. Podcast. <laughs> uh, we're here today, Megan and I, to celebrate episode 100. That's right, folks. 100 episodes. Uh, February 2018, we recorded 100 episodes. And I was having a look across those 100 episodes. We've also had, guess how many guests? Uh, 400. No, nearly 370 different guests across 100 episodes. Wow, that is a lot. It is. We've had it's a lot very of nice people. More than once, but absolutely. It's uh, 370 guests and it's fantastic. Uh, so mm -hmm. we thought we'd join you today, drop into the podcast stream just to celebrate episode 100 and just talk a little bit about the show just for 10 minutes to give you a few insights about what happens behind the scenes. So... Megan, maybe I'm going to ask you a question first. Which is your favourite episode? I like the ones where I have been to their place of work and then interviewed various researchers because I think they open up a slightly differently. Although I do also have to say recording in the studio was nice because Patrick, the sound guy, was there, who was, who was really nice and helped me learn about levels. I liked him a lot. Patrick is awesome. If you're listening, Patrick, we love you. We really miss you. He, do, he is still editing the podcast for us, but he's uh, stuck working at home in London as well. I'm delighted to be joined by three amazing people who I'm sure many of you will have met before. Hello to Wendy Mitchell. Uh, hi, Wendy. Um, and Chris Roberts and Jane Goodrick. Hi. Hello. Hi. Good to be here. We, we, we've had to come on the same device because of internet access problems. We're on a, a campsite in the middle of Somerset somewhere. That's brilliant. I, I'm very envious, although it's sunny in Oxfordshire as well. Wendy, you're uh, muted. I don't know if you've noticed. You might just need to unmute yourself. <laughs> That's okay. Oh, and that won't do, will it? Well, you probably would. <laughs> I can guarantee, Wendy, oh, you won't be the sorry, first, first person I say that to today. Almost. <laughs> it's the phrase of 2020. You're on yeah. mute. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm Wendy Mitchell. Um, 
I've got mixed dementia too, although I, I only found that out by looking over the consultant's notes because they told me I had Alzheimer's. And then one day I looked over the consultant's notes and it said mixed dementia. And I said, why, why has nobody told me that bit? <laughs> uh, don't you think it might help me a little bit? Uh, anyway, um, so I, I was diagnosed oh, um, five or six years ago, something like that. Um, and as Chris said, you know, you're given no hope whatsoever. Yeah. The way, the way diagnosis is medicalized, you, you just have all the negatives thrown at you and no hope whatsoever. And I wanted to be involved in research from the start because I saw that as the chink of, of hope, just as Chris said. Because um, you have to have something to cling on to when at the beginning you know nothing else. And just being involved in research just made me feel valued again and gave me that sense of, yes, I still have something to give here. And so, so that's how I started to be involved in research and have continued ever since, just like my lovely friends. And when I found out that research didn't involve um, people being invasive and stealing your body parts, <laughs> and that, a, a lot of projects are um, just just filling in surveys and questions and, and, and assisting that way. That then that I realised that that's something that I could do and, and, and I could do quite well because I could take my time, and and it really does make you feel like Wendy says it makes you feel like you've achieved something and you're helping. Yeah. Tell for the people. Yeah, I I think social and technological research is is equally important as medical clinical research. You know, we have to find the best ways to live for those of us living with it now. And we have to find the best ways to care for those who can no longer care for themselves. And you know, the technology is I, I didn't use technology before dementia. So, you know, don't give up hope of learning technology just because you're diagnosed with dementia. Because everything I've learned, I've learned since being diagnosed. I never had an iPad before dementia came into my life. And now it's, it's sort of a, an extra appendage on me. <laughs> I've got one of them. Yeah. <laughs> Yours is called an Jane. An iPad. <laughs> terrible people, terrible people. But 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 we can't um we can't if we can do this then, then and join in and, and help after a diagnosis then then anyone can and everyone yeah. should be doing doing that. And I didn't realize at first that that research also wants not people just diagnosed with dementia but also healthy brains you know you know to, for yeah. comparisons and stuff like that so this is why we need money for research and all the money at the moment's disappeared because of this horrible time we're in yeah so 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 now you're back at work give us the money that's right <laughs> absolutely spot on
<laughs> now more than ever. I mean, the big farmers are all concentrated on going for the cure, the holy grail. As Chris often says, which one do you cure? There are so many different types of dementia. Uh, and as, as Wendy alluded, alluded to, the psychosocial research is enabling us to live to the best that we can whilst we can. Um, because the holy grail cure will not come in time for best benefit for Chris and Wendy and everybody else out there like them. Um, and it is extremely important. But there's all the other pieces of research in between that enable us to carry on, to enable us to, to um, learn how to use the iPads and the technology, which has been absolutely completely invaluable during this last four, six months, because the, the way the pandemic has affected people of dementia has been exponentially um, overburdensome. But this at least has given people with dementia hope and been able to reconnect and also we've taken a part in research during the the lockdown by having these um the ipads and things yeah researcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.